Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. I've been covering television for around a decade now, and before that, I was just a really obsessive TV fan. And so in all of that time, in like my whole life as a human being, basically, I've gotten this question more than any other. What is it that makes TV ratings work? Like, how do they determine TV ratings? How do they determine who's watching what? because I don't know anybody who watches and just fill in the show on CBS here. Like it could be the big bang theory. It could be NCIS. It could be anything. You don't know anybody who watches it. You don't know why there's so many people reflected in the Nielsen's watching it. It just feels to you like it's a scam. I, I, I get it, but the Nielsen's are a really surprisingly accurate measure of who's watching what on television in the U S and that is a hard thing to figure out. So like when I have questions about how the Nielsen's function, how they measure who watches what, or like how things like Netflix and Hulu are really changing the way we think about who watches television, I always turn to Joe Adelian of Vulture, which is part of New York Magazine. He is, I think, the best reporter at parsing out like how these numbers are changing, who is watching what, and all of these sorts of like little things you can get by digging into the data. So... For a sort of special explainer episode of the show, I wanted to have Joe in to talk about how TV ratings work, how they're measured, how they're arrived at, and also like the history of how we came to like really care about what younger people watch and don't care as much about what older people watch. Joe filled me in on all those topics, and he and I just sort of talked about the state of the industry. If you're interested in television, if you just have lots of questions about how ratings work, I think you're really going to like this one. So let's check it out. My guest today from New York Magazine Vulture, Joe Adalian. Hello, Todd. Joe is the best TV industry reporter. He understands ratings more than me, and I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on what ratings mean. You understand them so much more. So uh, one of the questions I get asked the most when I talk about television is, well, how do the Nielsen ratings work? And I realize I know that you and I are going to get into why they increasingly don't matter and soon probably will not matter at all. But I do think there's this confusion over what exactly is a Nielsen rating. So please explain to me like I'm five how these are calculated. They basically come from a survey of households uh, that Nielsen conducts on a regular rolling ongoing basis. Mm. It's a combination of uh, what are called electronic people meters, which is sort of a – you know, as it sounds, an electronic way of monitoring what people watch. They have little sensors that can tell who's in front of the TV and and what they're watching, what channels they're watching – it also still, as far as I know, last time I checked about a year ago, it still includes people writing things down in paper diaries uh, mm. because it may be 2018 and the rest of the world, but in Nielsen, it's always 1976. <laughs> um, and and it's a survey, like any survey, like the, you know, Nate Silver who surveys polls, it's, it's a sort of, it's their way of taking a measurement. And it's, it's generally agreed to be relatively accurate. Is it completely accurate? Probably not at all. But he gives a good overview. And Nielsen sort of tabulates that and uh, gets a representative sample of people and says this is what percentage of people at any given time are watching X, Y, or Z. 
And this is always the question I get when I sort of explain that to people is like, they say, well, you say you're not sure how accurate it is, but how accurate is it? Like, to what degree can Nielsen or anybody assume that this is, you know, within a percentage point of what it probably actually is? Because there's obviously a margin of error. Right. Well, there's a margin of error because, you know, they've gotten better. These days there's a bigger margin of error because Nielsen is trying to and doing a better job of trying to monitor different ways people watch television. They can monitor DVRs. They can monitor VODs. That's actually more accurate because it's a little more – or at least VOD is more accurate. I would say this. It's accurate in the sense that the advertising community, which is really what the Nielsen ratings are for, Mm -hmm. advertisers who base their decisions on how much money to spend – based on who's watching content, um, I don't think that as an industry as a whole, they would continue to spend millions of dollars on advertising if they didn't think there was some accuracy. Right. You know, that they're putting advertisements for McDonald's on Grey's Anatomy and no one's buying their hamburgers because, oh, it's all a lie. No one watches Grey's Anatomy or vice versa. You know, if they put something on, you know, some low-rated Sundance Channel show, sorry, Sundance Channel, um, you know, and suddenly they, their sales spike 100%. They might think, what? This is actually the most popular network in America. So um, I have not done scientific research into it, so I don't say with it. I, I, but I think it's, you know, there are wide variances and there probably are flaws. And especially what's, I think, interesting right now is the smaller the numbers get, the smaller the overall audience is, the, the, the less the accuracy, right? There's a right. bigger margin of error. And, you know, I remember 10, 15 years ago with smaller cable networks, you'd see some variance and cable networks complain. It's like, we don't really know, or maybe they surged and they didn't, you know, well, the numbers are so low, it's it's hard, or late night ratings were. So now as networks are regularly making do with shows that watch, are watched by 1% or 2% of the country or less, there might be some variance. There could be even lower or maybe a little bit more significantly higher. So uh, there's a little margin of error there. So there's the... The total viewership number, which I think everybody kind of understands, is like if 13 million people watch This Is Us, that's 13 million people who watch This Is Us. But then there's also this more obscure number for what we call the 18 to 49-year-old demo, and like maybe that's a 2.5 or something. I'm just making this up off the top of my head. I don't have This Is Us ratings data in front of me. But like, so what does that number mean, that 18 to 49 number? Well, there are two things going on. First of all, it's a demographic measurement of people between those ages of 18 to 49. Networks measure other demos like adults 18 to 34, under 12, you know, over 54. Uh, what it means is it's a percentage of the audience watching at any given time who are in that demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 2.5% of if there are 1,000 people watching TV and something gets a 2.5 rating, it means roughly that 2.5 of those thousand, which would be small, maybe say 2.5, 100, uh, are, are watching. Um, so it's a percentage. There's also a household rating, right? right? And that's also, that actually is a more, you know, I say this especially with events like Super Bowls and Olympics, look at the household rating because that is the percentage of homes in America. And that's, you say, if a show gets, oh, you know, the Super Bowl every year, the networks will put out a press release. It's the most watched television event in history. Yes, except that 30 years ago or 40 years ago when there were first Super Bowls, there were about half as many Americans. So it's a lot easier. It's like with box office, you have to adjust for inflation. A $100 million movie today is still impressive. 30 years ago, it was staggering. Now the bar for success is really a $200 million movie or $300 million for the true blockbusters. And in the box office world with with movies, you know, people who report about how movies do – We'll sort of look at not just how much money it makes, but what the budget was, right? What right. the cost was. That's that sort of frame of reference. It's a little less scientific, but they sort of based on that. It's a percentage of based in a you know two times its budget, so that's successful. Demos are sort of 
in a way that because it's sort of – it's because the networks care about demos and we can talk about that later why they do. It sort of measures intensity of a certain audience. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think I did the math a couple of years ago because we were doing a big piece on the Super Bowl ratings and like why it's this big event. And like the most watched in terms of a percentage of the American population watching the Super Bowl is I think like 81 or 82. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's unlikely that it will ever come close to that. Right. And yet there are still more raw viewers. It's important because it does change. It's a variable and it's spin on the network's part. But as I was saying, so the household rating is, again, the percentage. So, you know, MASH, for example, is still, MASH was big in both viewers and percentage, but it was just stunning in terms of percentage. And that's important because it, it says the amount, the percentage of Americans watching TV is much more important than the number. But the number is, is a measurement that we've sort of taken to in, as reporters because it's easier to understand. It's like, yeah. oh, 20 million people. And if you're wondering how many people are watching TV today, it's a much easier way to do it. If you're thinking in historical context, then go for the household rating. Right, right. Of course, then you could also make, we could go deep, deep into the weeds about why it's also apples and oranges even then because – 30 years ago, 40 years ago, there were only three or four choices to watch. There were no DVRs to allow for time shifting. Yeah. Hmm. With today's ratings, you have to, and we'll probably get into this, you have to account for delayed viewing, which, you know, producers of shows in the 70s would say, well, it's not fair if you could give people, if, if my show would have also had more viewers that people could watch, because we could have. Mm-hmm. You know, there there were VCR views in the in the 80s, but those were, as far as I know, never counted by Nielsen. Yeah. It's fun to think about how many people would have watched, like, All in the Family, like this huge hit, if they had been able to just watch it whenever, instead of having to sit down on Saturday night at sure. 8 p.m. And, sure. Yeah. There'd be, well, and then that's why the number of hours for a while, I think it's starting to go down a little bit, but the number of hours of watching content and television has gone up. It's mm-hmm. because we're more hooked than ever, and there are more choices. And they're and it's more convenient than ever. Yeah, you know, is it good for society? Well, no. People people don't re have time. You miss your TV show. Well, God, I'm gonna have to read a newspaper. Okay. <laughs> now you never. You can just watch whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. You earlier mentioned the um, the finale of Mash, which is I think still the most watched percentage show. I I think so. Um, Maybe, I think it's like sixty seven point nine was the number. That's that's what I have in my head. It's probably wrong. Well, and actually, by the way, it's not a percentage of population. It's percentage of TV homes. Yes. So it's, it's like, and even then, so that's why, that's the other thing. We could get really down into the weeds here. Yeah. So all those people who come up to you at a party and say, I don't even own a TV, they're not counting. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And also, every TV home has more than one person. Some TV homes have 20 people, well, not 20, but 10 people in them. Yeah. Some have just a single solitary viewer. So you mentioned that the networks are not as interested in people over 54. And yet the audience of people that watch live television is graying fairly rapidly. Um, There are some elements that keep it from graying as rapidly as it it might. But first tell me how that thinking came to be. How did the networks come to say, old people, we don't care about you? Uh, And is that changing at all now that we know that's true? Well, it's all Don Draper's fault. Um, (laughs) Pete Pete Campbell. Pete, yeah. Yeah. Layman on Pete. It's not good Pete or Bob. Advertisers uh, are the reason we have television seasons that start in September uh, because they wanted to advertise the new cars. Demographics are something that happened when advertisers finally decided to tell networks. And networks sort of leaned into this, and I think they may have sort of – certain networks, especially ABC uh, at the time in the 70s, decided, hey, why are you selling to everyone? We have this – Nielsen can tell you exactly who's watching – you know, 55-year-olds who at that time were more likely to die at 55. I mean, the way the life expectancy is up a little bit more. They're not as likely to buy your product. They're not going to – and they and their and their product preferences are baked in, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know, you're already a Honda or you're 
Back then, you're already a Ford uh, consumer. You're not switching to Oldsmobile, so why advertise? You're not going to go try Coca-Cola when you already drink Pepsi or don't even like soda. So the thinking was advertisers wanted younger people. That's what was hip. And so networks started playing up their demographic ratings. They thought that there was more money, and they were right. It's in rather than selling volume, they sold specificity, and they sold the ability to move product. And the thinking was that made sense. Advertisers agreed. And starting in the late 70s when ABC sort of uh, transformed itself into a young adult network with Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and, and all those other types of shows, there was a power of the demographics, and that became really important. And, and for the most part, it's been the rule in television. Um, with exceptions, CBS has made a business out of of targeting slightly older viewers, but for a while they were getting a penalty. And, you know, despite, I won't even say his name, but despite the people who ran CBS's uh, business, they, they, they did pay a price for not having that sort of uh, young adult audience. I remember sort of in the 80s when I was first paying attention to ratings, like um, a show like Cheers was mm-hmm. not a big hit for its first two years, but younger people were watching it. So they were like, maybe this will catch on. Obviously it did. It ran 11 seasons. But I kind of feel like that thinking has come to dominate and I say this is somebody squarely in the 18 to 49-year-old demo. but For now. <laughs> for now. I feel like that kind of thinking has come to dominate too much, you know? Like, like, especially now that, like, the baby boomers who are the original consumers in some way are, like, in that demographic. Um, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, is that shifting at all, that thought? It is. It is out of necessity because overall ratings are going down. People who are younger watch less television in real time. Advertisers still care about people who watch live or are very close to live. And mm-hmm. they and technically, we could go even deeper into this, uh, the Nielsen ratings that matter are the ones that Nielsen measures who watches advertisements. They actually do have ratings that somehow, and I don't think they can use the people meters or the, the diaries with this, but they can sort of somehow tell if you're watching commercials. It's scary, but apparently they can. <laughs> Those are called um, the C3 numbers. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. These are Cs. And, and, and that's commercial viewing, and it's they and they want urgency because if, especially if you're selling a movie or a restaurant has a big promotion, you know, for all you can eat riblets, you, you want to be able to make sure people see your ad when that's still on. So the C threes matter, but the fact is, people who are younger are watching TV in a nonlinear fashion. So, and you started saying in terms of overall audience going down, networks like the CW network were hardest hit first, or not, young adult networks like Fox or Freeform. MTV in particular, they saw their live ratings and their C3 ratings just plummeted about seven years ago when I don't know what might have happened. Something called Netflix came on board in a big way with their original programming. But older viewers, while they've also shifted over to nonlinear viewer, while they're also watching plenty of Netflix, they're still more likely to watch live. They're still more likely to have habits. Therefore, their audience is bigger and that can make a difference. And they know they're going to go where the money is. They're going to go where the viewers are. And right. that's an older demographic. And there are advertisers who are starting to recognize that a little bit. There are networks that are recognizing that and they're sort of opening it up a little bit. And I think you are going to see more networks, NBC in particular, you know, was a network that for the longest time was known as the demographic network. It was all about 18 to 49s. Um, It still is Mm -hmm. to some degree, but they have under Bob Greenblatt who runs NBC, they sort of have cast a little wider net. They put on the Dick Wolf shows for for Chicago everything. And 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 it's paid off because it's it's brought overall stability. And CBS's philosophy always was we cast a wide tent, we get lots of everyone, including a decent number of adults eighty to forty nine, if the show is broad enough. Yeah. Um, and you're gonna see even more of that as they struggle to it. And in the nonlinear space, Netflix does not care how old you are. They yeah. don't monitor it, as they say, and 
they want viewers of all ages as long as they're paying the bills. And a lot of times it's the people over 50 who are paying the bills, including for the people under 20. Yeah. You notice that Netflix does a lot of, and we'll talk more about Netflix later, but they do a lot of, like they just picked up a show where Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin are the leads. And like, you know, obviously uh, and at CBS and ABC would think about that, but it's it's harder to imagine them making a huge commitment like Netflix did. So Roseanne, whose name we also shall not speak, but her show comes on and it gets, uh, I think it got 17 million viewers and this huge number. Delayed viewing was even more. And... A lot of that was attributed to there's still a lot of people watching live um, kind of in, let's say, the red states, in in rural America. That's what I have heard. So I'm, I'm wondering like – because it does feel as though networks are pushing to do more programming for that audience, the broadcast networks especially, spurred by Roseanne in some ways but also spurred by a lot of other things. And I'm wondering like have you had, had any conversations about that idea of like – which areas are still watching stuff live geographically? Well, as much live as, as more linear. I mean, I think people in red states use DVRs too. Mm-hmm. Well, sure, yeah. Yes. And the Russians Netflix love is everywhere, yeah. And the Russians love their children too. Um, <laughs> but I, I haven't seen anything specific on that. I will say this. In homes with lower incomes overall, whether they're red or blue states, they're less likely to have DVRs and therefore mm-hmm. more likely to watch uh, live or may not have as many over-the-top, a.k.a. streaming services like Netflix or multiple Netflixes. So right now there is a sense that there might be a little more opportunity there. I don't know if it's a political thing I, I, or even a rural and urban divide because you know uh, plenty of networks have done very well in, in, in sort of linear viewing again, C3, with shows like uh, Empire, Power, uh, Power mm-hmm. on Stars. Um, Oprah's network has done very well with programming targeting African-American women. So I think it's complicated and it can yeah. be fraught too to try to make too many assumptions. And, and until a couple of years ago, um, Univision was doing extremely well as well. Like they were occasionally the third or fourth biggest network or something. In part because they have a you know, they have a unique demographic. And what's interesting, that's an interesting little Nielsen nugget, is broadcast networks, English language broadcast networks, are much more likely to target African-American viewers than Latino viewers. Even mm. though the Latino audience is fast growing, et cetera, especially among older Latinos, there are a lot of them who want to watch in Spanish. Mm. And and it seems to be not a coincidence that uh, African-Americans target more because they don't have uh, as many options as, as Latino audience where there's a, several uh, Spanish language options. Yeah. So when you look at kind of these last few years of – Declining ratings, let's say plummeting ratings. In the sad, cases. sad years. What are what are the the stories that stand out to you as as arguments that the Nielsen rating system still has value or still can like produce a winner? Let's say. Well, as long as there's advertiser supported television, um, it matters. It's still you know how they matter is less important because what's happening is networks are having to find other revenue streams. Right, right. advertisers are not paying or investing as much money in old school television advertising because they're not reaching audiences as efficiently or as in broader number as they used to. So with declining ratings come declining ad revenue and networks have to figure out other ways. So other factors become important. It becomes important if a show has international appeal because the networks can own their shows and sell them to broadcasters around the world and, and, make up a whole bunch of that money that they don't get in advertising. They can 
make shows that have appeal to streaming services like Hulu and Netflix and get them to pay part of the cost of production. And mm-hmm. Netflix does this. Netflix will oftentimes now come in after a show's announced but before it goes on the air and says, we will distribute this internationally and, and we will have the second window. And after there's one season, we'll order this, their season on Netflix and we'll pay you in advance. And, and that's the entire reason the CW Network is in business because Netflix, for every CW show, pays something in the order of a million dollars an episode mm-hmm. towards the cost of production in, in order to have exclusive of rights to put you know Riverdale on the air in the UK mm-hmm. or on Netflix in the UK and to have past seasons you know three months after the season ends or four months so um, they look for revenue revenue supply so the ratings become a less critical decisive factor in whether a show is a winner or a loser a big hit is still going to be a big hit if it has big ratings a really tinily rated show is not going to be a big hit. It may survive if there are other factors that can sort of prop it up. Um, and if networks simply decide, you know, we just can't keep churning things out. So if we love it, we'll just sort of produce it and we'll figure it out. But it still plays a role. Yeah, yeah. I, I do want to just sort of break down something you said for, for the listeners, which is the idea of a network owning a show, mm-hmm. which is um, I think until 1993, a network was not allowed to be a part of the same company that owned the show. Then look, we can get into all the regulations around it, but that's just the broad gist of it. They're called so, the financial syndication yes. interest rules. So you look at Cheers again. That's a show that was produced by the Paramount Television Company, which is, you know, associated with Paramount Pictures and all of all of that. And it was aired on NBC. So NBC just collected ad revenue from it and Paramount Television sold it into syndication, had the DVD rights to it eventually, all of those things. Right. So now we're looking at a situation where like, um, I'm trying to think of a comparable example from right now, um, which is like a show like uh, the NBC sitcom Superstore, which is owned by the NBC parent company, NBC Universal. So all that money eventually gets back to NBC somehow. And that shows like a solid performer. It's It would probably be renewed otherwise, but it's certainly helped by like Hulu buying the rights to it, things like that. It sort of chips back into the company coffers overall. Is that more or less right? <laughs> No, that's exactly right. Networks for the longest time leased the shows from studios um, who owned the shows. So for a short window, they got to drive that car around and put advertising on it and and, and et cetera. Um, after about five and a half years, uh, the ownership would revert to the studio, which would still continue to lease future seasons. But those first seasons would then be up to the studio to do what it wants to. And that's why, you know, when I was growing up in the in the 70s, we would have reruns of The Brady Bunch on local TV because I believe it may have been Paramount who owned that at the time, mm-hmm. took that ABC show and, and sold it and made more money. Even though the Bradys had long split up, it was still making money in perpetuity. And in Finson didn't end that, the 19, which we were talking about, it was either 91 or 93. It didn't end that because for the longest time, networks still sort of lease shows and they still do today. Um, you know, Netflix has bought shows from Sony and Lionsgate Outside Studios, CBS shows from Warner Brothers that it needs, like Chuck Lorre shows, um, there's still a robust business of leasing. Yeah. Uh, but there's also a business that the the most effective way for the broadcast networks to make money, because they can't just make that money themselves on that five and a half year window, they, the revenue that they get from the advertiser sales isn't strong enough, they need to be able to make it up later. And, and the other thing we should say is that window too for networks has now become a, a lo- oftentimes a loss leader. They, they don't necessarily make all their money back. Networks used to be able to 
you know, make the money back sort of within that short window. Now they can't always do that. Um, a, a good example of a, a, a big hit show that one network airs but somebody else produces is uh, This Is Us, which is on NBC but is owned by Fox and probably soon to be owned by Disney. So we were talking about kind of the demographics earlier and you often just pull out these fascinating like tidbits of things that you would not expect. So I'm wondering like what are some weird kind of rating stories from the last few years of things that are – like you talked about the under 12s. Like what are the under 12s watching nowadays? For my own personal journey with ratings, you know, I – when I was first was a TV reporter starting in the 90s, um, the greatest day of my life was when someone, a source, told me about something called the ratings hotline. Hmm. And every morning I could call up a number in Burbank, California. Each of the networks had one. And someone would say, good morning. Today are the Nielsen overnight ratings for X, Y, and Z. Hmm. And someone would say, you know, uh, Seinfeld. 39.9 demographic. And and I would just listen and I would like be fascinated. Then we would get faxes and those were amazing. Publicists would send me faxes and I'd see all the information. Anyway, I've very much been into that and I still like tweeting some of the ratings. As a journalist now, though, I, I, I've not done as many of those deep dives in the last couple of years because it seems less relevant. Part mm-hmm. of it is because networks are making shows that people don't care as much about. Uh, there are still plenty of shows that people do love. But the other thing is the networks have sort of – there are clear winners and losers in the network ratings race sort of. You know, NBC and CBS are sort of at the top and Fox and – ABC, depending upon the week, uh, are, are sort of towards the bottom, but they all sort of do okay, and it doesn't really matter that much that someone's number one. Don't tell them that because it very much matters to them and their egos. You know, the fall premieres launch, and no one gets nearly as excited as they did even 10 years ago. Mm. The upfront presentations happen in May. It's like, okay, here are some more shows. Maybe one or two of them are good, but oh, wait, Netflix just released five shows. Sorry, got to go. Yeah, um, And so – but there are still, you know, things that uh, amuse me and, and, and delight about ratings. You know, uh, one thing is that how well movie premieres can do on HBO relative to their other programming. You know, everyone talks about these big HBO shows and the originals that they spend and how, you know, my God, Sharp Objects, how great it is. And it's doing decently in the ratings uh, with one and a half million viewers. But you really want to see an HBO number, premiere a DC Comics movie. Yeah. Uh, they don't get the Marvel <laughs> movies. But premiere, uh, you know, Justice League or Wonder Woman, which I think this year did the best ratings that they've had in a few years. Uh, and you'll just see that they'll beat the broadcast networks that night in total viewers. And then you'll see throughout the next week or two the, the aggregate views. It's like boom, 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 boom. So this whole idea that everyone's just only watching movies on Netflix or streaming or iTunes. No, a lot of people are still watching through their linear HBO subscription. That's an important part of what they do. Uh, as for the under-12s, I don't know what under-12s <laughs> even know. I don't think they even know what television is, honestly. They really don't. I, um, I, by the way, the thing that really struck me, I had a physical therapist tell me last week, I, he asked me, who's the most interesting person you've interviewed lately? I said, well, I got to interview Carol Barnett. Yeah. He's 30 years old, and I swear to God, he said, who? <laughs> and I said, oh, you're joking. Nope. Well, I'm in my 30s, and I know who Carol Burnett is. Well, so. that's good. But you're in your <laughs> mid-30s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I still remember having to watch uh, – my parents would turn on those um, uh, Carol Burnett retrospectives that seemed to air every three months on CBS. CBS, yes. So that's how I've seen – a lot of Carol Burnett. I saw them in half-hour reruns that they aired, which meant I didn't know that they had big musical numbers that had been cut out of syndication because of Clarence rights. And I've asked Carol Burnett, you know, please bring those back. Anyway. <laughs> um, I do want to uh, talk to you just sort of briefly about cable because cable is, I don't know, it's like a weird beast. Like, And I kind of want to view it through the prism of 
Killing Eve, which is a show that aired this spring and did quite well for a cable show. And, you know, it grew every week. But also when I tell people about it, they're like, what? I've never heard of that show. So tell me a little bit about how it's different, how the cable game is is still kind of different from the broadcast game in terms of finding a hit. Sure. So the the night that episodes of Killing Eve aired on BBC America – Maybe on a good night, half a million, probably roughly half a million viewers watched, maybe okay. 600,000. And within a week or so, it would often go up to, or three days, it would go up to a million. It's relatively small. Um, and But that makes sense for a network like BBC America because they have overall much lower cost of doing business. They don't make as many shows. They... Uh, get their money from cable operators who pay them a fee for every subscriber they get. So as long as cable companies and cable providers like Spectrum or or, or uh, Comcast continue to pay them, that's where they make their money from. And so the expectations are that you don't have to do as well. The BBC America is not going to make as much money as CBS makes on a good day, but they can do okay. And what they need is they just need enough shows that sort of get cable operators to pay the same or more which is rare these days, for the content that they provide. So it works because they know they can only reach so many people. They don't have the marketing budgets as the big broadcast networks. So for them, it's all relative to what their average is, right? Mm -hmm. So Killing Eve outperforms what BBC America normally does by a factor of, I don't know, 20 sometimes, if it's just, you know, regular reruns of stuff. So that's that's why it matters. Yeah. And one of the other things I, I often am sort of marvel about is like we look at a network like FX and FX has so many great shows like they just had the Americans End, they have Atlanta, they have a number of shows TV critics love to talk about. But the apparatus they built to do that was largely paid for by two and a half men reruns, which back in the 2000s were ubiquitous. And like they aired so many times and they made quite a bit of money off of those. And then they could sort of plow that back into their original programming, which is now, you know, hugely successful. And they invested in movies, deals, which also did well. um, And Buffy and back in the day, Buffy. I mean, and also Rupert Runock investing a lot of money. That's part of it too. (laughs) He was the owner. uh, He's the owner uh, for a few more days or weeks. And cable was was built on the back of broadcast TV, which always got broadcast people very upset. (laughs) Uh, Rightly so, you know, because, you know, they would talk about all these great cable hits that critics were loving and giving them Emmys too. But the relative audience was still small compared to the those two and a half friend reruns. Yeah. Um, so yeah. To what degree do you think that's true of streaming? Because you look at services like Hulu and mm-hmm. Netflix and mm-hmm. they have mm-hmm. huge libraries of stuff that aired on traditional mm-hmm. TV. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt that Network reruns were the gateway drug to people for streaming. It's Mm -hmm. why we went to streaming. Hulu was launched on the back of next day reruns and still exists largely as a delivery system for next day reruns of broadcast shows, even though they make a whole bunch of noise about Handmaid's Tale, which is important. But, you know, it also goes back to the model that HBO was launched on. Uh, HBO in the 70s was launched as home box office. Mm -hmm. It was built on not old TV shows, but not old, but you know, movies that had aired a year or two ago. And that was and still remains a big part of the appeal. HBO realized if we want to grow our base, if we want to keep people interested, especially as movies started coming out on DVD and or on video cassette and then DVD, they said we need original programming. And so even though they HBO kept as part of their mix blockbusters, Showtime got rid of them and they plowed the money into original programming. For them it's about content that can in the long term get people to feel I have to subscribe to this, that it's not enough. So while I feel like there is probably going to be one day a service that mostly caters to people who just want reruns Mm -hmm. and it'll be a separate fee, it'll be sort of like the nick at night of streaming, 
at least I hope this will be the case because I want to subscribe to this, <laughs> this service. It's at, at this point, yes, it may be true. Network people will still tell you, but more people watch this. Well, sure, there are more episodes of Friends. Mm-hmm. You know, there are 230 of them, and the most successful show on Netflix has maybe 50 or 60, I think, Orange is the New Black. I guarantee that's why people actually subscribe. Netflix doesn't care about shows just because they do care about the number of people watching shows, but they care about the overall why they subscribe, how long they keep watching, whether they keep returning, having a mix of programming that appeals to different audiences. And so those network reruns are still a part of their mix, but they're not essential Mm. as they once were. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste. Hey, this is Peter Kafka. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'd like. It's called Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. Every week I talk to the smartest and most interesting people who make media. That's journalists like Emily Steele from the New York Times. She just won a Pulitzer. Jason Blum, Hollywood producer who made Get Out. Marcus Brownlee is a giant YouTube celebrity you may already know. And if you don't, you'll want to know more about him anyway. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You can listen every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts just like this one. See you there. You did a great story about Netflix. You spent who knows how long hanging out with them in their uh, their giant fortress on Sunset. And- with amazing catered lunches. <laughs> really. And uh, I... I guess I'm wondering how sustainable it is like to be like, okay, because Netflix, uh, Netflix especially, but both Amazon and Hulu to some degree have all realized we're not going to be able to just buy libraries from other companies that have these TV and movie libraries forever. Eventually they're going to wise up and, you know, do their own streaming services or something like that. Like you hear Disney continually threatening to do so, but how sustainable is it to essentially just flood the market with programming like Netflix is doing. They're, they're spending up to $8 billion in content this year, not all of which is – about half of which is original. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it's still acquired. And um, every indication is it's a sustainable because what they're trying to do is they're trying to become the new way people watch television. And you know, I asked them, why do you keep making so much and, and when will you stop? When they stop seeing subscriber numbers go up and hours spent watching go up. When that happens, you will see them retrench and you will see them sort of stop making quite as many shows or perhaps pull out of different um, types of genres, right? Uh, I I personally have a theory that they're doing a whole bunch of A-B testing right now, which, I mean, they love A-B testing. They're very honest about that in sort of their interface, right? You will – different people will see different art for for TV shows, et cetera. I sort of think they're saying, well, let's see if talk shows work better or reality shows. Let's see if A or B, comedies or dramas. And so is it – Feasible that in 10 years we'll be talking about how Netflix no longer does this or that? Absolutely. Mm. Uh, But in the meantime, what they're doing is because they're capturing so many hours of viewing, because they're spending so much, because they're attracting top talent and stealing them away from their rivals, sort of want to do what Amazon did, which Mm. is close down that shopping mall, close down the corner store like Walmart did 30 years before that. They want to sort of be the place you go. And so when they become – the way people watch television and what they're used to, then they can suddenly start either 
charging a lot more, which they're going to keep raising the price. That's, right. that's guarantee. Um, or you know, other people won't be able to compete, and they'll pull out and. Well, well, Netflix is left standing. So there's, and this is what you know. FX's John Langraff is most uh, worried about, and is sort of the Cassandra of, of saying, you know, it's all a trap. Um, and it's possible that indeed you, we could wake up and people in Hollywood would be like, the only person who wants to buy my show are Netflix, Amazon, or Google, and they don't want to pay what they were paying five years ago because they don't have to. Yeah. And suddenly the per episode cost could go down. So if I'm a Hollywood writer, I'm making my money right now while I can. Because there's no guarantee that this gravy train that's been going on for the last few years of what we call peak TV, uh, thanks to Mr. Landgraf, um, will continue. But I do think it's sustainable because if they continue growing the subscriber base. Now, if suddenly they stall out um, and don't or people start canceling, God forbid, then sure, I guess it could be a house of cards. Um, <laughs> but I think the more likelihood is even the most skeptical people, even John Landgraf will tell you in his deepest, darkest private moments, there's no way there's not a Netflix in 10 years. What it is, we don't know. It could be bought by another company. It can yeah. be consumed with Facebook. Who knows? Yeah. How do you survive if you're not Netflix, if you're not Amazon? Um, you know, uh, it looks like something like Hulu is going to get bought by Disney, which is probably this a big enough company to sustain itself in the onslaught of Netflix. But like what if you're, you know, in a smaller network? Like we're already seeing the Fox network sort of – turn into a sports delivery system. So, You know, it depends upon what your business model is. Um, there are still a lot of people who, as we talked about, watch in a linear fashion that don't want to uh, buy cable. Um, there are people who, you know, broadcasting cable is still a decent business for the next few years. And you can make money. It depends upon whether you – how much money you want to make. Um, mm -hmm. So – I think you will see a culling. You will see cable networks go away, subsumed into each other, um, subsumed into streaming services. You know, I, for example, can't imagine why Disney is going to keep Freeform around five years from now. Mm -hmm. uh, it does okay with some programming, but they can make all that available on their streaming network. They already mm -hmm. do a lot of that. So, But it really depends upon the big cable companies, which are also owned by big corporations, uh, at least in some cases like Comcast. You know, if, as long as they sort of find a, a need to it, uh, then they will. An agent said to me the other day, you know, this whole idea of, of CBS being the most watched network, it's not going to matter in a few years. It's just, it's not what it's going to be about. What's interesting is going back to ratings, we're in the next few years, we're going to have the most accurate viewing numbers we've ever had, except we won't be able to see them unless, you know, we break in and hack the system. Because yeah. uh, the streaming networks can really accurately tell you how many people are watching. They yeah. don't. You know, radio survived the, the onslaught of television, right? So, you know, nature finds a way. People who want to make a buck find a way to make a buck. You know, you have the Apple iPhone is the phone most Americans, I think, use. Maybe it's Android. I don't know about the day. I think it's the iPhone. But there are people who use trace phones, yeah. uh, you know. So, sure. We've briefly talked about CBS here and we don't need to get into it, but uh, the head of CBS is under fire. He could be gone by the time you listen to this. Yeah. CBS, the broadcast networks, they're just not relevant, he said to me. Yeah. They're just not as the center of the universe as they were 10 years ago, just like Nielsen ratings are. And it pains for me as someone who loves ratings so much because, you know, even I don't check the ratings every morning anymore. Yeah. I sometimes go a few days like, oh, I forgot to check. And they're like, eh. Yeah, I really I miss the days when uh, Entertainment Weekly ran the chart of the top thirty shows that week or whatever. For for me, it was uh, USA Today. Every yeah. Wednesday would have the grid and the nights and the this, and it's, it was amazing. And <laughs> and more recently, as I've become a journalist, I would get detailed cable ratings information, and then they will show you like what's you know every single network what they do, and like which game shows on GSN are the most popular, and <laughs> and which reruns on TV Land do. It's like what you know, and it's it's when you spot things like Bob's Burgers, which was a show that Fox never 
never really cared about and never promoted and never made into a big hit is a huge hit still. Uh, it's a decent hit on cable. Oh, and uh, King of the Hill is a show that also didn't get as much love and it's still 15 years later is doing very well. I, I do remember before the 20th Century Fox appears to have merged with Disney. Before that happened, they were talking about making a Bob's Burgers movie because they saw mm-hmm. or they at least intuited how many people were watching it on Hulu of all places. And like I realized that's where I watch Bob's Burgers. I catch up three or four episodes at a time every few weeks and have a great time and then go about right. my business. You and know? that speaks to the essential accuracy of the Nielsen numbers. They're still measuring it correctly as they always have probably. Right. Uh, but do they – really capture how people are watching? The answer is no. Right, right. Well, I do want to ask about that kind of as we head into the end here, which is the question of can anybody measure streaming? Because a lot of people are certainly trying. There have been some numbers released that Netflix will scoff at if you ask them about it. But are we eventually going to reach a place where those numbers are available? I feel like we are. I don't think we are. The okay. agent that I talked to said we will. I mean, because there's absolutely no reason. And uh, it could be. I mean, look, if if the technology exists, you know, Nielsen says, or excuse me, Netflix says it's not true. And it makes some sense because of, of you know, those systems can't necessarily tell as accurately how many people are watching or, or uh, so I wonder if Netflix can even tell that, quite frankly. I mean, yeah. Netflix, you know, can, they can guess based on profiles, but they don't come 100% now. So, I, you know, look, if the technology becomes available, I guess so. Maybe Netflix would sue to stop it or Amazon or Hulu. But, you know, I'm actually sort of in a Zen place. As mm-hmm. much as I've been addicted to ratings throughout my life and career, for for art, for production, doesn't matter. You know, it's what matters is what's good. We can see through social media and other venues what people talk about. The problem, of course, is that, you know, it gives a lot of power to executives to sort of decide what's important, but they always had that power anyway. Right. You know, they sort of determined what was a hit. You know, CBS would cancel shows, and they did in the in the 70s. They canceled a whole bunch of shows that appealed to audiences in the sticks, as it was called, in, in rural areas, like the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres, because they didn't think they were appealing to advertisers, and they just decided. So they were hugely rated shows. Mm-hmm. Boom, gone. Mm. The Mysteries of Laura. Yeah. You know, one of our friend Alan Seppel's favorite shows, <laughs> um, you know, had a decent sized audience for NBC, but didn't have good demographics and yeah. was gone. So, you know, the people who have power will always have power to kill or so prove shows how they want. I, I, I'm OK if I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll miss it. I like yeah. knowing what's the most popular. It's a nice cultural aspect to it. I know you love variety shows, the old 70s shows where they do, you know, some comedic sketches. There'd be some songs, things like that. And one of the things that makes people nostalgic for variety shows is some of those were huge hits. Like everybody was watching Ed Sullivan. Everybody was watching uh, Flip Wilson, Carol Burnett, some of these shows. Don't you feel like there is some value in knowing something, knowing categorically with numbers that something is a hit as opposed to sort of this endless splintering we're doing into different subcultures. There's something nice about everyone watching the similar shows Mm -hmm. and especially in real time if possible. Knowing the actual numbers doesn't make a difference to me. I don't think people then sort of were saying, oh, God, Carol is number one and we all watched and I feel better. They were talking about because that's what they talked about. I think today people now, you will see people, you know, Netflix can put out a comedy special from an obscure New Zealand comic Mm -hmm. um, and suddenly everyone's talking about it over the course of two weeks on social media at least. And then suddenly she's up on talk shows and doing things and – 
that's an experience. She's part of our viewing experience. It can be, you know, the discovery of of the first season of Handmaid's Tale and right. wow, what was that? Mm-hmm. I, I think we and in some ways we're better primed to interact with shows than we ever were because of social media. And by the way, audiences that didn't always get away to sort of you know, get attention can through social media because, you know, shows that appeal to people of color would not necessarily get right. as much attention. Nobody was covering good times as much as they were probably covering all in the family. But now shows like Power or How to Get It With Murder or Oprah shows can get uh, lots of people talking about it on, yeah. on different forms of social media. So, uh, yes, shared viewing experience is, is something that is missed, uh, but TV evolves, you know, and life evolves. Yeah, yeah. We're entering an era where there's a lot of uh, new players kind of trying to get in. You have Apple, who knows what they're doing, but they have like 25 different shows they've picked up. Uh, you have Facebook Watch, uh, which also I don't know what they're doing, but apparently they have shows that already exist that I haven't watched. I don't have a Facebook account. So. <laughs> you don't have a Facebook account. I technically right? have an account. That's a lie, but I've never actually liked or posted anything to it. And there's the perpetual threat of Google's going to do something with YouTube and they kind of are. They are pretty aggressively actually. I think they've argued they've done much more than Facebook quite frankly. Sure, sure. I I think I would put them in the same. I would put those three in the same bucket of not being quite sure what they are Mm -hmm. just yet. Mm -hmm. Like I I like YouTube the best of those three like in terms of their programming, etc. But also – The the people running – the woman running the YouTube TV division knows what she wants to be. Mm -hmm. Suzanne Daniels used to run the WB. Uh, The people who are bosses, I don't think they know what they want to be and they could wake up tomorrow with a a tick on their ear and decide, eh, TV, (laughs) yeah. Do you sort of believe in these services as becoming credible threats to uh, the Netflix, Amazon, and Hulus of the world? Credible threats? I don't know. I think it's going to be in the same way we've had um, dozens of networks. You know, it's it's the question becomes is does television revert to the sixties and seventies and fifties form of a big three or big four? Mm-hmm. They probably will, uh, but it won't ever be exactly as much of a monopoly as it used to be because you will have smaller players and you're going to have companies that sort of make video content as it serves their needs. Um, And I think that's okay. I don't think – even Amazon, I don't think Amazon has any desire to compete with Netflix. They're not trying to be that company. They're trying to find something that supplements their prime membership service and whatever is enough that can gather programmings. But any time Jeff Bezos could wake up and tell the fine team that he's assembled at Prime Video, thanks, yeah. you know, please have some free shipping for life. And that's that's the end of the dream. Yeah. It goes away. There's no evidence they're trying to build the model. Apple, I have no idea either. Um, I talked to them and, and I, you know, I think it's something to do with, you know, subscriptions and maybe we'll be able to get your all your magazines through Texture, which they bought, and all your TV shows and all your music and boom, Apple Media and that's great. And they'll make enough like Netflix to get people to watch. But do they want to be the dominant form of television? I don't think so. Hmm. Does Disney want to with its new service and its ownership of Hulu? Yes. They hmm. want to be a player. They absolutely want to be a player. Comcast will get into the space at some point soon. Hmm. You know, maybe they – Get Hulu after all. You know, by the way, just if you're listening, you know Disney is soon going to own potentially 60% of Hulu, and the other 40% will be uh, NBC, Comcast, and I forget who else. I um, think Warner Brothers is a very yes, small thank stake. you. Warner Brothers yeah. is a, a, a tiny little stake, but Warner Brothers, which is now AT and T, well, we forgot about them because of the phone <laughs> company. You know, someone so as we're talking about CBS again, and someone said to me, it's like, yeah, CBS Moonves will probably go, and and uh, CBS will got uh, merge with Viacom, which owns MTV and Comedy. Central, and then they'll all get built by a telephone company. So soon Verizon will own CBS, perhaps. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to spread out my scenario for the future, which is I feel like in the, the next future time, the future of television. Well, assuming that there is a television and there is future, <laughs> um, I kind of feel like we're going to see further and further splintering of like you have like a, a service I love is called Filmstruck, which mm-hmm. is basically the Turner Classic mm-hmm. Movie streaming service. And like, you know, that's that's just a, this tiny little thing that only a few people know about. And it's great, but like how many people are going to subscribe to that? So I kind of feel like we're going to have these plethora of like tinier streaming services, some much larger ones like the Netflix, et cetera. And eventually there's going to be a call for more bundling. And who owns most of the internet infrastructure in this country? It's the cable companies and they already know how to bundle. And we're going to be right back where we yep. started with the cord cutting journey. Uh, but I, I guess I'm asking you, like, what's what's your scenario for the next uh, 10 to 20 years of what this industry looks like, assuming the world exists? Let's, right. just, let's, let's grant that. Let me check my Twitter feed to see what the president has said today. <laughs> Um, I think there's a lot of logic to that. I think that um, bundling makes sense. Bundling is, you know, because of the abuse of cable companies who decided they wanted to launch um, so many networks and make so much money and, and why why just three networks when we have 29 and make you pay for MTV, you know, live. Bundling got became bloated and got a bad rap and you end up you just can't get what you want. Smart bundling can always made sense. Cable works because it was sort of socialism. It was mm-hmm. sort of you paid for networks you didn't watch, and but you got the networks you did for a relatively decent cost. And you got a lot of selection. And then, of course, it began out of control. Um, so if bundling can be done in an efficient way where Disney can offer you – a lot of great services for a decent amount, then it could be good. And maybe they'll get to the point where you say, I don't even need Netflix. And that is a threat to Netflix too. And that's mm-hmm. that's a fear. Netflix is also has the big advantage of being sort of that first into the marketplace thing, that brand identity. They are just sort of the way that people over 35 just know what channel numbers CBS, ABC, and NBC are because of that brand identity. If they don't watch it, Netflix is going to be something like, i got to have Netflix for mm-hmm. now. So I think that there will be a couple of big sort of broad services and some small ones, and you can bundle if you want. You don't have to bundle. Maybe you want eight smaller services, so you want your version of I want my TV land. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the streaming service that has all the libraries and and the film Turner Classic. I want my Turner Classic movies for TV, which is something I still don't know why no one's done. You know, so I'm going to make it happen. It's on right. my list. All right, it's. Copyrights always. Anyway, so yeah, I think there's some of that, but I do think there's going to be in the medium term, there will be a a reckoning and less production. We're still in the growth phase. I I think at some point when the subscriber increases level off, when some of the linear networks go away because they will – um, you could see a lot of people out of work. I mean, and already some of these mergers that are happening now, I talked to one person who says it could be you know, maybe up to 7,000, 10,000 jobs in entertainment that could go away mm. because, you know, you won't have Fox making as many TV shows and you'll have uh, entertainment executives. You're going to have people in different companies behind the scenes who aren't going to be necessary because they're all going to come together. So. Yeah. Well, one thing's for sure, uh, networks will keep trying to find old shows to revive. Um, and that's a good thing. <laughs> I want a new version of Maud. So. <laughs> well, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. I'm going to ask you some of those questions. So oh, I was not told about this. I try to spring it on people unawares. Um, but actually, I know your answer to one of these because uh, we were talking about it last night, and it's a good one. So what is the last kind of pop culture thing, show you watched, movie you saw, book you read, like the last pop culture thing you did, and what did you think of it? Is this about Match Game? You can answer with Match Game, yes. It's not necessarily the last thing. I mean, I did see, uh, you know, 
the the Equalizer Two. How was that for you? Yeah, um, <laughs> very violent. Denzel's Denzel. I kept thinking he should just do this as a TV show and not be as violent, and he's just doing it for the money. Uh, I'm right now currently obsessed with uh, game show reruns on both Buzzer Replay, which is a little digital TV network that's over the air that you need an antenna to get in most places. But you can live stream it, actually. It has a live stream now. So buzzerreplay.com and Game Show Network, which still exists. Um, And I'm particularly enamored of the match game from the 73 to 78. Um, uh, Also old episodes of Family Feud with Richard Dawson. But it's very, very entertaining. It's very much a way to turn off your mind and forget the problems and just see people being funny and winning money. And never have you seen people so excited over winning $100. (laughs) I mean, really excited. Who's uh, who's the writer or the journalist that has uh, you've learned the most from that you never met? They can be alive or dead. Oh, Matt. I've met a lot of my heroes. I mean, you know, uh, David being Cooley and 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 uh, Matt Roush, uh, Bianco, Monica Collins, who gave me my first job. She was a TV columnist for the Boston Herald. And I've met Tom Shales, who was a great writer. You know, it probably would be I don't I can't remember any names, but as a kid, I read a lot of news magazines, mm-hmm. um, Time and Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report, and I loved the way that they wrote about the world. It was a very novelistic approach to the week. It was it was sort of the sort of the first draft of history beyond just the daily news. So, you know, those people were pretty cool. I mean, I so I can't think of an actual name. Um, I mean, TV news, I love Jeff Greenfield and, and Ted Koppel yeah. as interviewers. But yeah. And finally, uh, as a journalist, uh, what is your favorite interview you've ever done and why? Carol Burnett was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, it was brief. I've interviewed Oprah Winfrey a couple of times, and it's as awesome as you would think, <laughs> both in person and, and uh, I've met her in person. The interviews were on the phone, uh, but she smells amazing, and she does have an aura and light around her. She is smart. She's engaging. She never for a minute makes you think you're talking to Oprah. Mm-hmm. You just think you're talking to your friend, and she's just really good, and, and she gets it, and she's funny, and she's human, uh, and yeah, so Oprah is, she lives up to the hype, and Oprah 2020, I'm still rooting for it. <laughs> when you meet Oprah, are you ushered into like her inner sanctum? Is there like a chamber? Of, I've not been in an office. I, I met her once at a TC, outside of a TCA, I think, and then I forget the other time, but she's called, I've, I've talked to her since going back to like the New York Post days, and uh, she'd called me a few times. She was, she was very savvy. She, she knows how to work her sources. Well, Joe, your work can be found at Vulture. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Todd. The ratings for I Think You're Interesting are through the roof, and we would like to thank you here for that. We are watched every week by 7 billion people. That's right. Everybody on Earth listens to this podcast, and that's because it's hosted and executive produced by me, Todd Vanderwerf. The I and I Think You're Interesting. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. Our executive producer of audio at Fox Media is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our studio this week is the Rebel Talk Network studio in Los Angeles, California. And our recording engineer was Ernie Hurtado. You can please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher. It helps us get great guests for the show, even though all 7 billion people in the world listen to it. You know, we, 
we sometimes have to pull some strings. You can email me, Todd at Vox.com. You can email the show, ityi.podcast at Vox.com, it.podcast at Vox.com. Or you can tweet at me at TVOTI to vote. We'll be back next week with somebody else from the world of arts and entertainment, media and culture, somebody who I think is interesting. And until then, here's a little puzzle for you. If Johnny has a three share and a 5.4 rating, but all only a 2.3 in the demographic, then Janie has a four share and a 2.2 rating, but then like a three in the demographic. What does all of that mean? Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. Hey, and guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste. It is a great week to start watching Vox's show on Netflix. It's called Explained. Every episode is a 15 to 20 minute deep dive into one important topic. Check out this week's episode, Why Women Are Paid Less Explained. It is amazing because it's narrated by Rachel McAdams, who's one of my favorites. It also digs deep into that fact you've heard that across the world, women earn less on average than men do. In Poland, for example, it's 91 cents per dollar a man makes. In South Korea, it's just 65 cents on the dollar. But a huge body of research also shows that overt pay discrimination only potentially explains a small part of the gender pay gap. So if it's not about discrimination, why are women around the world paid so much less than men? It challenges our understanding of the gender pay gap today by exploring the causes of the gender pay gap in recent history. And it features interviews from many of the most influential leaders and thinkers on the topic, including folks like Hillary Clinton, Anne-Marie Slaughter, and Greta Van Susteren. And it also features folks from around the world who are making big strides, like the Prime Minister of Iceland and the Rwandan ambassador to the UN. And I mentioned it was narrated by Rachel McAdams, right? I think you'll find it fascinating, so go check it out. You can search for Explained or for Vox on Netflix, or you can just go right to netflix.com slash explained.